Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1380, entitled Malseum Peace, and I hope everybody is experiencing some kind of peace today. Our podcast title is Pod Burning, because we're getting very socially aware today. I believe, on Zero G. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And today we're going to talk about a particular graphic novel. Now, graphic novels, we're all very familiar here on Zero G with the superhero GN, which are often individual comic books uh, printed together in runs to create a trade paper or hardback. So Mm -hmm. you can read the whole thing at once. And, of course, there are ones which never were individual comics but are printed first as larger works. Now, it's at this stage that some mainstream reviewers usually can't resist having a dig at the superhero genre, and they will say, but then there are more serious graphic novels. But, of course, we don't have that agenda to grind. So (laughs) all I have to say is that and then there are graphic novels which are made to document historical events such as GB Trans 2010 America, which is an illustrated text about the author's family's journey from 1970s Vietnam mm-hmm. after the Second Southeast Asian War to the United States. Oh. And Sean Tan in 2000 eschewed text altogether to show us in pictures uh, kind of every refugee <sighs> or indeed immigrants' experience in The Arrival. Mm, 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 Lots of awards that one garnered too. Now, also in Australia in the 21st century, Bruce Moutard in The Sacrifice tells the story of a pacifist who enlists in the Australian Armed Forces in World War II in a narrative made all the more compelling to me as a Melbourneian because I recognise some of the iconic buildings and streets still visible today. And the combination of artwork and text, well, it is very evocative really, isn't it? And it allows you to tell quite a bit more story because you don't have to actually rely upon word pictures. Mm. You can put the pictures in. And it can be very impactful if done well. Similar to, it's like a real intersection between novels and film in a way. Mm. Yeah, I've read plenty of graphic novels that really hit home because the format is used to its best advantage. So this isn't just let's draw pictures for what would otherwise be words. It's quite the art form, I think. Mm. And speaking of art, we have Art Spiegelman's. Yes. Mouse, M-A-U-S, which is the German word for mouse. Mm-hmm. Indeed. As in the little guys with the whiskers. Won a Pulitzer Prize for this one, amongst other things. Indeed. If you can get it at the moment, because there's been a controversy. Well, I think there's no shortage of copies. It's actually blown up, as I will cover in a moment. But yes, so we're going to talk about Mouse today, which did come out in 1986, as Rob mentioned, Pulitzer Prize winning classic. And it is a graphic novel that's widely considered to be a very impactful piece of literature. And uh, it's part memoir. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But 
I guess let's introduce why this has risen to the surface again, because it was, of course, published several decades ago, but has remained in the cultural consciousness because it is such a wonderful exploration and portrayal of a quite horrific historical event. So it is based on Spiegelman's parents' experience of the Holocaust. Now, in January of this year, the McMinn County School Board, and yes, I'll call them out, in Tennessee, they did unanimously, there was 10 of them, they decided that they would remove the graphic novel from the Year 8 school curriculum. So citing the reasons as being profanity, nudity and violence and some rough language and, yes, the nudity, as mentioned, not in a sexual nature, but there's nudity in the the graphic novel, and I'm putting that in air quotes there. So they did take minutes of this meeting, and then there's some quotes from these school board members. Well, I'll just leave for your consideration here. So one of the members said, we don't need to enable or somewhat promote this stuff. I am not denying it was horrible, brutal, and cruel. It shows people hanging. It shows them killing kids. Why does the education system promote this kind of stuff? It's not wise or healthy. And another member has said, if I was trying to indoctrinate somebody's kids, this is how I would do it. You put this stuff just enough on the edges so the parents don't catch it, but the kids, they soak it in. I think we need to relook at the entire curriculum. So obviously... I mean, these are some statements which I have many issues with, but let's talk a bit about this has really kind of struck a bit of a note in the US environment at the moment and it's become quite the controversy and hit the headlines and has received quite a bit of coverage. So a bit of the fallout and so on. So (laughs) you did say, Rob, whether we could even get a copy, but it seems many people are trying to get a copy and have had quite the success because there's been a resurgence of the title on Amazon. So it's now on a bunch of different bestseller lists and people are obviously buying it up quite heavily. And Amazon is much more used in the US. So people have really turned there to to buy their copy of Mouse to really see what the fuss is all about, I suppose, for those who hadn't already read it. Similarly, in Solidarity, some cartoonists have used their art form to talk a little bit about their own opinion and they've published work inspired by the controversy and in defense of Spiegelman and obviously opposing this decision. So Ward Sutton drew something for the New Yorker, which appeared at the end of January. And I saw a couple of other ones. They actually draw on different social issues of the moment, such as gun control and mask rules to kind of point out a little bit of not hypocrisy, but just the uh, misguided intentions here where maybe we should be focusing our attention on the other ways children might be in danger within the school rooms. So similarly, there's been a positive sort of response. There's a comic store in Tennessee that's offered to provide copies of the book to students in that area for loan and college professors offering free classes for students that cover the book so they can still engage with the material and discuss the book. So And a lot of students who studied mouse themselves in school, cultural critics, communities in general, a lot of people have spoken out and been quite astonished by the ban and opposing some of the comments that have been made. And Holocaust-focused organisations as well, of course, have spoken out, as well as Spiegelman himself. So Spiegelman has said he's baffled, for one, (laughs) and has described the whole affair as Orwellian. I've read a couple of articles that said this one's kind of hit home for him because he's he's had many young people who've spoken to him, written to him, 
and talked about how much they've learned from the book and how much they appreciate his storytelling in how it handles something like this and getting them to see and understand the impact of those events. So I think for him, this has kind of struck a a note and really disappointed and shocked him, quite frankly. So to note as well, I mean, I disagree with this decision on many fronts, but the book is not banned. It's just not going to be taught anymore at that school. And I mean, my school did not teach mouse. And I guess at one point it was on the curriculum, but the school board's decision does not reflect well on the energy in the US at the moment, even though on the surface, it does appear to be from the minutes of the meeting more around a a prudishness rather than a denial position or racism or more of the bigotry angle. I think it does seem to be maybe of people are sort of speculating that it's more about this prudishness of what's appropriate. However, the concern is that it's part of a kind of broader wave that's been happening lately around scholastic censorship in the US that's largely led by conservatives and conservative movements and a lot of books that deal openly with race or LBGTQI themes have been removed or banned. And so anything that doesn't fit with a more right-wing sensibility is now sort of being questioned. So people are sort of saying, why is this falling within that umbrella? Is this, you know, but there's some broader fears around, you know, the role of the Holocaust in collective memory and that it's been something that the left and right have been able to agree on being atrocious, but there's now a bit of a fear that there's an erasure happening and some of the lessons that should be learned are not being learned and so on. So I think there was a quote that I thought really sort of summed it up a bit. The right-wing educational initiatives currently underway are sanitizing history to produce simple patriotism without complicating factors that might produce reflection or guilt. So, I mean, there's a lot of threads that have Mm. been pulled here For some might say it's a simple small county decision, but the broader implications and kind of the suggestion of, you know, what's happening in the US at the moment uh, in terms of more radicalization, I guess, the right-wing radicalization uh, has really struck a bit of a, a conversation. So that's sort of the lay of the land of what's brought this back into our attention. Mm. So we thought we'd have a bit of a closer look at what all the fuss is about. That's a good summation, Megan. I was, <laughs> the irony of, of Art Spiegelman <laughs> encountering this now, at this advanced mm. stage, decades after this book was published. Well, I mean, he's been an advocate for comic books and comic book rights all along. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. It's like, yeah, and here it is. And using, yeah, and using that form, I mean, he was a big part of the wave of cartoonists who were using it to push different challenging ideas and engage with social critique and things like that. And it's sort of kind of, it's 2022, why are we having these conversations? And I think that's part of it that, something that should be so agreed upon or something that should be explored and learned from is being questioned in this way. And you have to wonder, surely they're not saying that to criticise Nazis or just to present what they did is, Mm. yeah, damn right it's political. In fact, actually, damn is one of the words that they cited as being on the nose. Yes, (laughs) yeah, well... Really? (laughs) I mean, this is the thing. I think the things they were calling out as having problems with as being inappropriate were things that were more around 13-year-olds shouldn't see nudity or profanity and things like that. But, you know, 
it's at the cost of exploring and discussing and engaging with some very important parts of history. And they've decided that this, Mm. you know, the word damn is avoiding that is greater than, um, (laughs) yeah, letting these kids be exposed to to real history. Again, the irony is that uh, if you don't expose children to this kind of thing, (laughs) they could be doomed to repeat it themselves one day, you know. And this is bit of the discussion is that some of the, you know, discourse that's happening and things that have been said around, you know, and even the fact, you know, different terms of that era are being thrown around again in relation to other Mm. marginalised groups and so on. So, you know, I mean, now's the time when we should more than ever be trying to look to the past and, and remember where we went wrong, but seem to be a bit resistant to that. So I think it's really touched on a bit of a note in terms of, yes, it's removing something from a curriculum, but also we're really starting to press on a bruise within US culture at the present moment. Well, I did hear as I was coming in today that there have been some book burnings in Tennessee, not related to the school book burning. Reportedly some pastor sending copies of Harry Potter and Twilight back to the demonic hellfire that he thinks spawned them. Meanwhile, the American Library Association reported that in just autumn of 2021, 330 books were challenged as objectionable compared to 156 in total for 2020. That's a a rise which they noted was unprecedented. And it's like there's just one goose step away from that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And that's the thing. Like, you know, we didn't study mouse. I wish we had them. It's a wonderful text. But we did. We studied the diary of Anne Frank. You know, there's a lot of, of ways of introducing that to people at a young age, and I think there's a lot to be learned from it. The more we take it out, I think it's to the detriment. Yeah, which is ironic again. I mean, the very people who are usually against what they call, and I find this a, a ludicrous term, cancel culture, Yeah, they're quite willing to cancel books, you know, with challenging ideas in them. Exactly. (sighs) And sort of it's, yeah, it's this streamlining of ideas and things people get exposed to. And I mean, I understand there's maybe some content that's not appropriate, but this is not within that camp. (laughs) Struggling to find the nudity. And then I realized that it was one of the characters, their mother commits suicide in a bathtub, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, you might actually say that might be quite confronting for a young person out of context and perhaps should come with some kind of notation somewhere in the thing. The characters are all mice and cats. And also what what better place than a school curriculum to, you know, frame that and provide a place for someone to, you know, understand that and have the support rather than coming across it on their own Mm. kind of thing. Exactly. But I really can't get inside their heads. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a real shame because having it on the curriculum in the first place, I think, is wonderful. And then so we're backpedaling, really. Mm. So Now, speaking of getting inside people's heads, we can get a little bit inside of Art Spiegelman's because we've got him here with some dialogue. Mm. <laughs> and this is from Instituto Balumen Band from an album called Plays Leon Country, connected to his admiration for some other artists' work, because if you listen to it, that's what he's talking about. Art Spiegelman speaks. This is Sir Derek Jacobi. Zero G or not zero G? That is the question. Yeah. Well, actually, that was perfectly self-explanatory. <laughs> 
Art Spiegelman, he believes that comic books uh, mimic the way our brains process information. Mm. We see something and then we have our internal monologues about what we've seen. And really that does actually underline the universal appeal of cartoons and comic books and illustrations mm. and artwork. I think he actually nailed that. Mm. And, yeah, his influences do include the aforementioned artists, and he did talk about Robert Crumb there briefly, and, of course, a great underground comics creator. Mm-hmm. You know, he grew up Spiegelman, that is, reading Mad Magazine. And mm-hmm. like many a young artist, he was mimicking the artwork you know he'd do his own mad magazine style comics and actually when you look at mouse the artwork in that book you can see that kind of mad magazine format and very heavy heavy reliant upon black and white artwork harvey kurtzman was also a strong influence and of course will eisner now immortalized in the eisner awards in comic book land franz masserell who did woodcut novels Oh. Yeah, so these were these were wordless, but that would work too. A lot of the ones from the times when he was growing up, Little Lulu, Little Nemo, Crazy Cat, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. So yeah. I can see where he gets all of that. But he also has a lot of literary influences too. Franz Kafka, Gertrude Stein, all these sorts of things did influence him. Art Spiegelman has amblyopia, which means that he doesn't have binocular vision, can't see things in 3D, which doesn't mean that he can't draw in 3D, though. Of course, he harnesses perspective quite well in Mouse, showing, for example, the vanishing points for trams going off into the distance or rows of buildings or cells but it does influence the style of his artwork, which is often very stark and densely textured, but more in a two-dimensional sense. The Complete Mouse is the the copy I've got, and Mm -hmm. this has got the two original books all bound together in one format. Yep. And with the big red sticker on it that says, Winner of the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) I mean, you would, though, wouldn't you, advertise that if you had taken away the Pulitzer? And this is the, uh, the Pantheon hardback. I think you've got the one of the trade paperbacks there, Megan. Yes, I do. It's a soft cover one and it's, yeah, the same collection, The Complete Mouse, because it was a serial and then was released in this version in 86. In a, uh, a book called Raw. Mm. So he's basically tried to put down, and this is where it comes into that whole strand of graphic novels we're talking about that, document historical events. He's interviewed his father, Vladek, for the most part, and also his stepmother, Marla, to record, transcribe and adapt their experiences from just before World War II and during it into comic book format. Now, his father was a Polish Jew and obviously endured some terrible, terrible trials. Vladek and Anya's experiences in the Auschwitz camp complex during the war are as harrowing as you'd expect and likely far more. As Art Spiegelman's therapist, a survivor of the Holocaust himself, explains, it was one continuous terror from the moment that you entered the place until the moment you left, either by being liberated at war's end or, to use the grim phrase, used by the poor captives by going up the chimney. 
such a large and monstrously big picture to be told in so many small drawings, so many lives brutally ended and so few saved by a chance opportunity desperately clutched at the unspeakable winnowing procedural of life or death at another's whim. I hadn't realised that his father, he also was a prisoner of war, captured early on in the Nazi push through Poland, and then later fortuitously released. Mm. So, you know, twice in situations. And obviously his father survived. And I think that's part of the charm of, of, of this book, if you can call it charming in that respect. It's also a story about a son's relationship with his parent. To read is to weep and to perhaps understand a little of the generational trauma that Art Spiegelman inherited from his parents. Mm, yeah. And that did have a lot of resonance for me because my parents uh, had been through the Great Depression and World War II as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm not comparing their experience to the concentration camps or anything, but everybody knows something about their parents that they have as an obsession, Mm. something that they learnt life lessons from and are determined to impart those same life lessons to their kids or their grandkids. Yeah. And he captures that very well, Spiegelman does in this book. You know, things like Vladek stopping on the street to pick up bits of telephone wire because he finds them very useful for tying up packages and things Mm. and insisting that his son should do that too because (laughs) why should you always buy things? You just find them and use them. You know, what's with all the buying? Other things like ensure that he eats all the food on his plate. My parents were very big on that too, to an obsessive sort of level of detail. So this is a part where I think that this book can speak to anybody who's had or got parents. This is a universal story just with that. That's before mm. we get to, obviously, the Holocaust. Yeah. It's about family as much as history. Yeah. yeah. And of a terrible reaping of families too. Mm. You know, the book is pervaded by the absence in the presence, which is to say the 1970s and 80s, and also the presence of the absence of his mother and the brother he never knew, Richaud, and also, of course, all of his parents, friends and colleagues and family who were murdered by the Nazis in the Holocaust. And we're talking about... not quite sure the exact number of the Spiegelman family. It might have been 85 or something like that. Of those 85 members, it's reduced to a very, very few by the Holocaust. And you just think that is a story that needs to be told. Yeah. And if that school board were before me and they would ask me that question (laughs) of why does this need to be told to children, it's so that they will not have to tell their children and grandchildren the same damn story revisited upon their generation or by them. Yeah. That is the reason. Yeah. yeah. As well as, of course, to memorialise so many wonderful and potentially wonderful people who were lost to us at that time. Yeah. So, yeah, Mouse, um, divided up into the two main books but also into several subchapters. So Mm -hmm. pretty much the way that you divide your own life up into chapters when you think about it, you know, automatically. 
about his father's courtship with his mother and a previous courtship as well was less serious in that there was no marriage involved at the end of it. And his father actually said, after he told him, he said, promise me that you won't put that in the book. (laughs) Now, it's in the book. Yeah, you never can trust writers or artists to not draw from real life when they want. (laughs) Mm. And so he has done that. Now, the main device of this book, which we'll get to blowing the cover of that one, Uh called Mouse. So Spiegelman has drawn anthropomorphized mice-headed humans as Jews and cat-headed humans as Germans, with other nationalities getting their own distinctive animals, the choice of which you can obviously guess caused controversy for some. It's a, a useful distancing device that simultaneously also draws the reader into engaging with the narrative. Oh, and um, Spiegelman uses it as a deliberate plot device at times when he has one species wear a mask to pass as another. Obviously, this is also graphically, as it were, a reference to and an undermining of the Nazis' criminally nonsensical fetish for racial purity. Later on in Spiegelman's career, he thought that the Spielberg movie, An American Tale, Mm. was kind of ripping off his concept. (laughs) I haven't seen that, actually. You haven't seen American Tale? No. Uh, Well, I'm not going to play the song today (laughs) because I'm kind of being respectful now of Spiegelman's perspective on that. I was just going to go for that obvious, there are no cats in America. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, no, let's skew that with Zero-G style. So we go to an album called There Are No Cats in America, mm-hmm. and the track is called The American Dream. It's by Kirsten Marilyn, and she's having a more analytical approach to that. Although if you've actually seen An American Tale, that idea of there being no cats in America and the streets are all paved with cheese and these are refugee mice from Europe being sold on that idea, obviously that doesn't turn out to be the case. So this song also features kind of that in a way. So The American Dream by Kirsten Marilyn from There Are No Cats in America. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Yes, <laughs> The American <laughs> Dream by a New York-based musician, artist, writer, actually she's one of those renaissance people, believe it, that, that uh, <laughs> Kirsten Marilyn, and that's with two I's, K-double-I-R-S-T-I-N. Oh. Uh, from the album There Are No Cats in America, which was her debut album, and which actually does have a cat on the cover, <laughs> because why not? And interestingly enough, although I suspected a connection between that and the Spielberg movie An American Tale, and that the uh, iconic song from that, There Are No Cats in America. She actually confirms that in an interview that I was listening to. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I was very, very much aware of the irony of that song. You know, mm-hmm. She said, America must have had a really good PR person back in those days. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was that big statue with her little book and her torch. You know, but Anyway, back to Art Spiegelman's book. The Complete Mouse, which is what I'm mm-hmm. at, M-A-U-S. And this is, of course, the book which is about the Holocaust with the characters replaced with mice and cats. Mm-hmm. I would yes. like to say I do find the uh, the conflation of cats with Nazis <laughs> a little bit unhappy from the point of being a cat person. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, in some respects, it's a fair call. 
<laughs> Although the usual go-to in metaphorical terms was rats, you know, the, mm. the ratsies, which was a, a thing during World War II. So I don't know. You can probably take the metaphor too far. <laughs> but not so in the mouse book. Uh, I was just bowled over the first time I read this. It, it has a an influence upon your psyche, mm. partly because it, if you read it, I, I'm not quite sure what the experience would have been like reading it in its original serialized form, you know, because I come across it as a complete graphic novel. And that's something I will never know because you would have been waiting each week to see what happened next. And the interesting thing about the way that this is structured is, rather like Interview of a Vampire, it's about an interviewer who gets the story of his father's life from the man himself. And I think that was a an excellent way to frame it because it opens it up mm. the author's own experience of getting the information rather like, you know, in the bit in, again, to recourse to our science fiction movies where the scientist explains things to his assistant. Mm, mm, yeah. Mm. So I, I felt like that when I was reading it. Yeah. You're like kind of in that same position as the author was where you're getting the story told to you and yeah, as a reflection, kind of like in Titanic when Rose is talking about the great sinking. Yeah. Well, the author doesn't step back from the fact that this is a relative and he Mm. is difficult and he has difficulties that are clearly based upon his wartime experiences that have stamped themselves into his very being afterwards, you know, Mm. and that is what it is. And I feel like that resonated so strongly. Yeah, yeah interweaving the war years throughout the 1970s-based framing story is an evocative contrivance, not solely because of the comparison and contrast, but because it gives sympathetic insight into many aspects of Vladek's post-war character that would otherwise be unexplained. The blended timelines and interview style makes the narrative very meta, especially from Art Spiegelman's perspective as we see him at one stage we find him spinning out at the success of Mouse as a cultural phenomenon, whilst at another time he doubts his ability to even complete the project authentically. And speaking of meta, there is a Meta Mouse edition of the novel, complete with audio copies of Art's taped interviews with Vladek. Historical documents are included, some sketches, and a lot of other material too. But the edition that I have here is The Complete Mouse by Art Spiegelman and it is a Pantheon hardback and it contains both of the original graphic novels. So look, I mean obviously this is a book that I would put in the top 10 graphic novels of all time. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. so this is one that you should go and read. If you can find a copy at the moment, although they're, they're not too bad in Australia, we're far enough away from the the controversy of the book in uh, Tennessee school, wasn't it, Megan? Yes. So it was, yes, removed from the curriculum. So I do, I will stress it wasn't banned. Oh, okay. But the kind of implications of the decision have had far-reaching effects, let's say. But I don't think you'll have trouble getting your hands on a copy, and I highly, like I agree, Rob, recommend that you do if you've not checked it out. Mm. And you mentioned I think it sits 
you know, quite comfortably in the list of top graphic novels. I did want to call out a couple of others that you might be interested in checking out that are kind of a good example of graphic novels tackling, you know, historical or different themes. Uh, so there's one called Persopolis by oh, Marjan Centrapi. So that's about a young girl's experience growing up in Iran. Highly recommend that. There's also a film as well. And there's also another one that I read semi-recently, which is a little bit harrowing, but very good called Sabrina by Nick Transo. And that one is about a woman's disappearance, but it's also a lot about conspiracy theorists in America, the military, terrorism, and a whole lot of very heavy themes. It's quite an accomplishment. So that's another one I'd recommend with some content warnings as well. Mm. So those two are two others that stick out. And I think, you know, Mouse is not alone in, in being an example of the graphic novel being used to really great effect. So there are some others that I think if you're a fan of Mouse and you want to try some other graphic novels, those are two others I'd recommend. Mm, mm. It is not an easy read by any means. No. You know? Now, if, if the Tennessee School Board had looked at it from that angle, saying we need to present this in a context, so we'll actually put it in the curriculum and make sure that there's lots of classes around it and, you know, now, that would be mm. a fair enough comment, I would say, because there's a lot to take home from this one. But it was not to be. And perhaps, you know, you know, we could be sitting here in a couple of weeks' time and saying they've reversed their decision. I mean, they may. I mean, that's the thing. It was being taught there. And and so it could be that they reverse it or or what have you. I mean, that's what I would hope, but we'll see. And, of course, because it is also laden with – irony it is now on more bestseller lists once again more people are reading it than ever which is great i mean but i think if people are going to read it now because of this that might not have come across it previously that's fantastic but just the underlying of how we got here is still you know what's the where's the world headed (laughs) all i can say is that i read it as a library copy Mm. actually that's probably not the best example of and look, it's done me no harm <laughs> that I can think of. But we'll just move on from that. <laughs> now, I barely hesitated before programming this track today. We have played it before. And I always think it's a pretty damn good bit of anti-Nazi propaganda mm-hmm. because it doesn't actually deal with a gander but or even a goose, but with a duck, which is to say Donald Duck, a known associate of a famous mouse himself. Now, it comes from a titled film called Der Futurist Face, which is a short film, a a cartoon, basically, 1943, and released by RKO back then. It's got Donald Duck. He's in a nightmare, and he's working in an arms factory in Nazi Germany. And so they're obviously trying to uh, sell war bonds with this cartoon that they play at the cinema, probably ahead of a patriotic film and a newsreel, so the whole package there. And there was a a song in this written by Joe Grant and Dick Hilmer and Oliver Wallace also put into the music here. And then Spike Jones, that known comedian and satirist, released a version of that afterwards. And so that's what we have here, Defura's face. So go back to World War II for this one and think, I can't believe that we're still talking about Nazis in the 21st century in respect of there are pseudo-Nazis and neo-Nazis around. I mean, who looks back at World War II and thinks, yeah, let's have some more of that? I know. Yeah, it's, 
disgrace. <laughs> okay, so let's not talk to them. Let's just sing at them in a satirical way. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, Spike Jones with his tribute to the Fatherland there. <laughs> From Defura's face back in the 1940s. Yeah, okay, it's allied propaganda, but, well, you know, what can you do? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, All right, now, moving along to some news, there's another classic fantasy novel series Mm -hmm. on its way towards television. After many years of toing and froing, the Rift War saga, Raymond E. Feist's and oh. Jenny Wurtz's epic fantasy, which has spiralled out into so many different books along the way. I think I lost count at 20. All of them good. All of them particularly nuggety type of fantasy that I like. Very, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. realistic. Okay. I've actually interviewed Raymond Feist a couple of times on Zero G and had good chats about his work. He's off onto another cycle at the moment of stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can. They're prolific, I, those fantasy and sci fi authors, aren't they? Yeah. And basically, the, the Rift War um, books detail the collision between two distinctly different cultures. One is kind of a pseudo Japanese kind of world, and the other one mm-hmm. is a more Western European medieval type setup. And there are okay. there are portals involved, but it's way more complicated than that. But that's just it's never just a portal. No, it's never just a portal. They've got people working on this from a production company that's brand new called Six Studios, and they're going to do the first six novels of the Rift War cycle. But obviously, if this took off, they could just go forever. <laughs> basically. And they've got writers who've got in their CV, just throw these out there, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the new Disney Plus series, Fear the Walking Dead, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I think you actually need a, a bit of a comic aspect because there are, is actually quite a bit of humour in those novels. So we're talking like fairly old fantasy now. So it's great yeah. to see that it's sort of been put up. So we've you know, got like 30 books in the whole thing. So you could get a lot of mileage out of that. And they think uh, they're probably just going to focus upon, to start with, uh, Pug the Magician and Mm -hmm. Mara, who's also, um, I think, in the second trilogy of books. So you could put this all together in one big sort of series and maybe juggle some of the timelines and stuff, and you know, how they did with um, Game of Thrones. So, I mean, now we've got, like, you know, the Game of Thrones is finished, but there's House of the Dragon. That's a prequel, and there's a D&D TV show in development. Oh. There's always one of those. There's The Wheel of Time and yes. Lord of the Rings. Yes. We've got The Witcher and Shadow and Bone. I have seen Shadow and Bone. It was pretty, I'm kinda, pretty good too, actually. I'm kind of keen to read those books, actually, because it's a bit of an amalgamation of two series, the Six of Crows series and the Shadow and Bone series, and I'm kind of keen to check them out. So, yeah, but with no shortage of uh, mm. book-to-screen adaptations at the minute. Mm. Mm. I think that's because everyone's looking to be the next Game of Thrones. Yeah, well, there's a gap. Well, that that Targaryen thing's going to be out, so, yeah. It's enough to freeze the blood of a true fan of the books, you know, with either with excitement going, oh, finally they're going to do it, or with terror, because <laughs> <laughs> or a bit of both, yeah, to be honest. Yeah, good luck anyway. All right, I also wanted to mention that the James Webb Space Telescope, which uh, has been undergoing its 
three-month oh. alignment process. So, you know, I should say unfolding because there was like mm-hmm. 300 separate operations that had to go right. And this is out there at a, a Lagrange point in space and it is going to produce so much data. He says with positive enthusiasm, not exactly going to replace the Hubble Space Telescope because it's seeing mm-hmm. on a different different parts of the spectrum, so it'll be kind of complementary. But it is obviously the beneficiary of a lot more technology and the the leap in uh, imaging technology and so on that's gone on between the launch of that back in the uh, gosh, we're talking about the nineteen nineties. Oh yes, way back then. Uh, it might even be earlier for the Hubble. Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> I should be able to remember that. I can't look that far back into time with my own mental telescope. Very exciting news because mm. we need to know what's going on out there. And mm. and back then, because, of course, long-range space telescopes, they're showing you light from the distant past or, yes. or heat radiation or whatever. And this will tell us much more about the, the beginnings of the universe. So if we end up finding uh, that there's some, like, Thanos sneezing into uh, talcum powder and then that creates the stars <laughs> or something, you know, that would be crazy. <laughs> I'm looking for Slighty Bartfast's signature on the glaciers myself. All right, so, uh, Megan, you have some interesting news too. Yes, well, that's a good segue, in fact, because I just had a couple of TV shows that I wanted to mention that are on Netflix at the moment. So since we did, I think we did a whole show on Squid Game and the popularity of Squid Game, and I think a lot more people are watching uh, Korean content, especially because Netflix is putting out a lot of Netflix originals that come out of Korea. I thought I'd flag some other Korean content that's easily available if you already subscribe to Netflix. So the first one I wanted to talk about is The Silent Sea. And uh, that one is eight episodes. It's all up there now on Netflix. It is a sci-fi mystery and it is set in a dystopia. So like a near future earth where there's no water or resources left. So it's, it's in a bit of trouble. And they send a team from a space agency uh, to the moon, to a space station, a research station there on a mission. And uh, the team includes uh, Han Yun-jae, played by Gong Yu, also known as the slap guy from Squid Game, <laughs> and uh, Song Chian who's played by Bay Duna, who we've seen in many things, including The Host, Cloud Atlas, Sense8, and Kingdom. So these two are kind of the two leads that we can latch onto as this space team heads out and uh, on their mission to retrieve a sample from a research station that is abandoned. So they do it smoothly and everything's great. <laughs> Of course not. Of course not. We wouldn't have a show. So we spend a lot of time on the research station and the team has to figure out what's happened and, you know, unravel some secrets and stumble across surprise after surprise. So it's a bit of a space dark mystery. So thought I'd flag that one uh, as something to check out if that sounds of interest. It's already on my watch list. <laughs> there you go. It's on mine too. So I haven't checked it out yet, but I'm very keen to, not just because I like Gong Yu. Uh, the second one, which might have already come across your desk, Rob, is All of Us Are Dead, which is Chikum Yuri Hakunin, which is also now our school. Yes. The Korean title. Yeah. Yes. So that one is on Netflix too. 12 episodes, high school zombie show. That's pretty much all I need to say. Well, um, well I, I hope it's probably not as misogynistic, I suppose I could say, uh, as the uh, the high school of the dead anime. 
Oh, I know. I'm not. I'm not familiar. Yeah. Is that the one that you said was a bit much even for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this one appears to be a bit of a coming of age slash zombie <laughs> thriller, uh, and it pretty much takes place at a high school in South Korea. Zombie apocalypse has come, so the students have to protect themselves whatever with whatever they can get their hands on and try to survive. So it's based on a webtoon called now at our school and uh, stars Lee Yoon Mi, who was, I don't know how to, I don't want want to spoil anything, but she was a pivotal character in the Marbles episode of Squid Game as well. So all of us are dead zombie high school show. So that's also on Netflix. That's another one that's on my watch list. Yeah. Oh, and on Netflix as well, a new season of Snowpiercer. Ah, yes, back to the dystopia. So, yeah, chugging along, and I see uh, got to catch catch up on that one. Oh, and just a, a random one here. Um, I've been watching a Marvel series that has actually finished again after last week's um, monologue about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., <laughs> uh, Cloak and Dagger, uh-huh, which nice. is about two young adult superheroes who are bonded together. It's set in New Orleans. So oh, I felt nice. like it was a very unusual setting. Um, okay. And I – Normally, I'm not much for the sort of teen superhero stuff, but this one has actually grabbed my attention. But more of that perhaps at a, a later date. And that's about it for Zero G for today. Yeah. We're going to go out with a song called When the Wind Blows, and this is, of course, based on the uh, the Raymond Briggs graphic novel about uh, a British couple enduring the nightmare of an atomic war and how they're trying mm. to follow all the right government information and and pamphlets in order to survive. But, of course, it doesn't work out that way. Spoiler. It came out in 1986. They made a film about it too, directed by Jimmy Murakami. And David Bowie was supposed to do the whole soundtrack but had another project and only contributed the one memorable track. And that was what we are out with today. All right. Now, Joe Brown is coming up next with Astral Glamour. And thank you to Kayla Larson, our podcaster. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.